This is the Better Wealth Podcast with Caleb Williams. Welcome to the Better Wealth Podcast show with your host, Caleb Williams. And uh, this this podcast was a really, really special one for me because I got to interview uh, Kim Butler, who has been such so influential in my life and has just poured so much into me. Actually, the story was I was 19 years old. I was I just took over the bank's investment department and I'm I really don't know what I'm doing at all. And I'm I'm like learning from different people. I'm trying to soak up everything online. And I got introduced to this guy, this Todd Langford on the internet. He ran a company called Truth Concepts where he, you know, created a calculator system where you could share the truth about money. And I was like, you know what? I have to talk with him. I have to meet with this man. And so I uh, found his, you know, website, got his, you know, phone number and called in and, and just had the hardest time getting a hold of him because, you know, he was programming and doing things. And and so they, they were like, well, instead we can like refer you to his wife, Kim. And I was at the time I was like, okay, I don't want to talk to his wife. Um, and so, but they, they sent to me Kim and, and it, you know, at the time, I think she wrote like five books and she was like a certified financial planner, worked with Robert Kiyosaki, gave that up, started her own movement. And ever since then, she's really poured into my life in amazing, amazing ways. And, um, and I just, I, I just, and I said this before in the podcast when I interviewed her, if you listen to this, you're going to gain so much knowledge as, as it relates to how money works. And we're going to be talking about like how she began, what, what her, her prosperity economics movement is all about, little things like the difference between typical financial advising and traditional. And then we're going to go through the seven principles of prosperity. And like I said, I, this is some of, this is some of the best stuff all in all in one episode. So I'm super grateful. I hope you enjoy. And uh, so without further ado, here's Kim Butler. All right. Welcome to the the show, Kim. Hello, Caleb. So glad we're getting to talk. Yeah, same, same. Um, so one of the things that I kind of want to give my audience an overview is kind of like who you are, and kind of why you believe what you believe, and, and you're very active on social media. You've written what is it over seven books? I think on, so. On on like this idea of uh, using our money, and so before we kind of get into like the core of what you believe and what we kind of call the seven principles of prosperity, who is Kim Butler, and how in the world have you been able to accomplish so much mm, through lots of help? <laughs> <laughs> So um, I think the quickest background that's relevant is a very entrepreneurial mindset at early age. So my dad bought a milk cow for me when I was in fourth grade. Hmm. And I milked cows by hand every morning and every night. And I sold the milk. And in future years, my sister also got a cow and did the same thing. And so literally, I mean, fourth, fifth grade, I had a lot of money and I had a lot of expenses because we had to buy the grain and everything for the cows. And it was something that I was just involved with. My parents were actually teachers, but that gave them summer times free to work on our farm. And so we also made money driving combines and hauling hay for people. And, and it was just what I did. It was how I lived. So then fast forward to getting out of college, I started working at a bank and 
enjoyed my time there. And this is in the late 80s before mm-hmm. banks really got involved in mutual funds and annuities and insurance and other things. And I liked my time there, but I was frustrated because of the limitations of the what the banks could do to help people with their money. And that's really mm-hmm. what I was interested in. The branch of the bank, and I was in Scottsdale, Arizona, so there was a lot going on. There was a lot of real estate stuff. Plus, the branch of the bank that I was in had the trust department where all the investment guys were next door. So, I got Mm. a lot of involvement with all of that. And then, I progressed on into what you would call financial services, more the life insurance side, the stock bond mutual fund side. I had a father-in-law at the time that was a stockbroker and had been for years. I had a brother-in-law that was. I had a lot of clients that were in all kinds of different businesses And that gave me a lot of exposure to, again, continued entrepreneurial thinking. Mm -hmm. And I want to just pause on that quickly. Entrepreneurial thinking can happen even if you're an employee. Absolutely. It's a, yeah, it's a real ownership mentality that I just love and I think is super, super valuable. So, well, and, and Kim, we met when I was working at the bank as well. And, and you, you started mentoring me while I was employed and that was, I wouldn't be where I'm at without that. And so I, I just wanted to echo what you were saying is a hundred percent. Well, and that's such a great thing because anybody can adopt an entrepreneurial attitude, even yeah. if they are right now an employee. So yeah, great, great uh, perspective there that you've added. So I delved into this, quote, personal financial realm and started to get a lot of training, in particular from the College of Financial Planning in Denver. And none of that coincided with what I knew about how my business owner clients at the bank had built wealth. So I ran, if you will, a couple parallel paths for a while with my entrepreneurial-oriented business owner clients on the left, I don't mean politically left, just on one side, and all of my training on the right, and they really were not the same. And I was okay with that for about five years. And then I just got fed up with that horrible feeling that I think every human being Mm -hmm. has gone through at some point in their lives where there is just a major disconnect and these two sides were clashing. So. I went back to all my business owner clients and did a bunch of interviews conversing with them about how they built wealth and what they did. And I started doing some reading and interviewing other people, just asking questions, asking questions. And it was around that time that the conversations helped me develop these seven principles of prosperity because they're not anything I created. They're based basic economic principles that have literally existed since the beginning of time when people moved money around. You know, as soon as the concept of money, as opposed to barter, became something that human beings dealt with, these seven principles have been in play. And and they're evidence. Like if you read books like The Richest Man in Babylon that talk about, you know, stories way in the back and whether the book is true or not is irrelevant, the principles are there. Well, and and we'll we'll get into the principles here shortly. But the first one reminds me of "Think and Grow Rich" by Napoleon Hill. Absolutely, the, another great example of the principles at play, even sure. if they weren't called that or written out in the way that we use them today. One of the one of the things that I when getting into this business, I always 
I always thought we were throwing rocks at the traditional mindset of, you know, this, this idea of, you know, financial planning, which I know that you have a bone to pick with that word planning. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the things that I've picked up a word that I've really started using more is typical versus traditional. Can you like kind of talk about that? Because I think that's very, very unique and profound in what you're teaching and something that I've started changing my language um, since you've been in my life. Well, thank you. It's something that I had to get clear on myself. And so in my early days, I called the work that I did non-traditional because I was trying to help people understand that it was different. But I don't remember when this occurred to me. It, It just was really in the last probably seven or eight, maybe nine, 10 years, I realized that the work that we do, so the life insurance work, the investments that are in things like life settlements and bridge loans, real estate deals, that work has been around forever. That is the traditional work. And so then I realized, well, I have to come up with a word for all the stuff that's basically only been going on since the early 1970s. Which is crazy, which is absolutely crazy. (laughs) Yeah, And Kate, our our research writer, has to remind me all the time. Sometimes I think it's the 50s. She's like, no, the first class of certified financial planner certificates graduated in the early 70s. And I know, so... I just decided that the word typical made sense because we have to help clients see the difference. We have to help them understand that there is this thing going on called typical financial planning. Forget the plan word. I'm not even getting into my bone with that yet. (laughs) Thank you for opening that door, but I I happily will go there. But um, to get clear that there is, is a more traditional, more effective, more proven way for people to deal with their finances. And that's what we do. And our work is traditional. And what is going on in the media and all the talking heads and a lot of the books and materials that are out on the web is only Typical. So you, uh, you did some work with uh, the rich dad, Robert Kiyosaki's company, and what have you picked up a lot or what have you, what, what have you kind of taken away from what they're teaching? Because now you've kind of, you're doing your own thing. And I want to, after you answer that question, kind of talk about the prosperity economic movement, but um, very much a, a lot of my listeners, including myself, like love rich dad, um, poor dad, and love this, this idea of what he teaches. And one of the things that drew me into you is like, that how you teach a lot of the same things and you've learned from him personally, which I think is uh, what, what a great mentor. Absolutely. Well, I will happily share the story. It's certainly public of the day that Robert and Kim Kiyosaki came into my office. They were referred in by another real estate investor. This was long before the Rich Dad, Poor Dad book was out. And we essentially talked about the seven principles of prosperity. I didn't have them quite written down as succinctly as I do now. And I really give Robert and Kim credit for helping me get more clear about them. But what was so fun is I shared with them my way of thinking and they shared with me their way of thinking. And both of us, so all three of us, I guess you could say, had this aha because I had been sharing my way of thinking with clients upon clients upon clients. 
always getting looked at like I was a redheaded stepchild. Like, this is weird. You know, why are you talking this way? No other financial person talks this way. And the Kiyosakis were like, yeah, 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 yeah. That's how we think too. Yes, yes, yes. And then when they shared with me their way of thinking, I had the same reaction. Like, wow, you know, they're entrepreneurial. They're real estate oriented. They look at their finances as a servant, not the other way around. And so it was one of these great, like, I guess, you know, little mutual admiration societies going like they really appreciated my different perspective than the typical financial person. And I really appreciated their different perspective than the typical client. Wow. Wow. And then you just started becoming friends with them and uh, influencing each other from there. Yes. And then what was so fun when Rich Dad, Poor Dad, the book did come out, we helped them get that into the hands of people. And I, you know, I absolutely do not take credit for them getting it out in as many hands as they did. But we did whatever we could in our own little way to help them get people aware of the book. And then what was also just amazing is right at that time is really when the internet was launched. And so Robert was going around speaking to anybody that he could talk to to help get exposure for the book. And he would refer people back to us. And it dawned on me that we could actually help these people that were in different states. Because at the time, I had a very face-to-face business. Mm. But because of the internet, I had seen a presentation on what is essentially Zoom today. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, go to meeting, or it was called Placeware back then. And I realized that we could put that software together on the internet with our referrals that we were getting from Robert and help people all across the country. And that's really what started that more nationwide capability of ours that then contributed to so much else of our growth. And I'm super grateful for all of the books of Robert's. Um, In particular, I always like to point out a couple that are not as well known as some of his main ones. Um, Who Took My Money is an absolute favorite of mine. And it's sometimes hard to find. I'm not sure why it wasn't published Mm. and marketed as thoroughly as some of the other ones were. And then um, also Rich Kid, Smart Kid. (laughs) I love that one. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's awesome. I actually, I've never read Rich Kid, Smart Kid, um, but um, JG, who was my boss at the bank, read that and gave it out to different school teachers and like loved loved it so much. And so I I know the, I know the summary of it and it's uh, very, very powerful. So when did you start going online? Because I'm amazed to this day, most financial, you know, planners or advisors or whoever you want to call them aren't doing anything on the internet. And you were very early adapter to this. Yes. I, uh, somebody showed me a while back. If you look at the history of our website, partners, number four, prosperity.com, it's like it, it was definitely, I don't remember the number, but it, it was early, early in having websites and creating online material. And then, like I said, just actually doing business over the web, you know, in the early days, we didn't have the cameras. So you you couldn't see each other's faces, but you could use Placeware was a screen share environment. Interesting. Wow. And so really, um, I mean, I, I remember sitting in meetings where people were talking about, this is what the internet is. This is what email is. This is how you do it. And I just 
like took that stuff in and literally started working with it immediately. And I'm not a technical person. I I don't know really how I put all that together. Frankly, I do. I'm going to just give the credit to God because we had Mm. Kiyosaki going on. We had the internet going on and it just seemed completely clear to me that these two things could serve. Right, right. Well, you you knocked it out of the park. And and at the end of the day, you are ahead of the curve. And one of the things that I'm just so impressed by you is you have a team and you very much think of it from a team aspect. And that's really why you've been able to accomplish so much. And something that I look up to you in in, in, in trying to model after what you're doing. Well, thank you. I'll, I'll pass that credit on to Strategic Coach and Dan Sullivan as my mentor in that regard, because you as an entrepreneur can't have a life if you don't have a team. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the prosperity economic movement. And then I want to get into the, the core of the seven uh, principles of prosperity. Absolutely. So about five, six years ago, my husband and I were working on the idea of how do we help more whole life friendly financial advisors. So life insurance agents that work with whole life get involved with more people like themselves, because as I said earlier, we're the redheaded stepchildren of the financial services arena and it causes problems Right, and help each other more and work with the right wording. Because as you know, I'm a stickler for using the right words. <laughs> and Kim, I'm just going to jump in because I, I, I need to. Um, so I'm, I'm coming out with a book here shortly. And Kim was obviously one of the people that I wanted uh, to read, read it beforehand. And, and what, what I'm just so grateful for and is you're, you were a stickler. You, you shared some things that needed to be changed and you gave your opinions here. And like I'm, it's going to make my work better. And, but you do that from like, you'll, you'll correct someone on stage, not because you're, you have ego because you care so much about the truth. And, and so I I just wanted to just jump in to say like, you really do mean that. Well, thank you. Part of it is because of a desire to communicate clearly to people, clients so that they get it. And so when I hear advisors use language that is confusing I desperately want to help them not do that to their own clients because a confused client is going to say no. Yep. And so in addition to the con- the concepts being right as I've shared with you because of Todd Langford's truth concepts calculators I can have numerical proof behind all of the concepts and that gives the concepts so much power but only if they are described 100% accurately. Right. And so as Todd and I were talking, we decided that we wanted to create an event where advisors could come together and have like-minded people that they were sharing with. And yes, we could have some good content from the stage. And yet the most important thing was that the event was not about us. Right. And so we chose to create a 501c3. We took the time to get it approved as a full nonprofit charity. It's for financial education. It has two arms. One is for clients, which we haven't really fleshed out very well yet. 
and one is for advisors because as you're well aware, me too, I mean, all financial advisors, we need continuing education because we're out there just like our clients are. We're bombarded with the typical financial message. Incorrect. And so it's so important that we go forward and have a continuing education platform for both clients and advisors. And so because we wanted the event to supersede our lifetimes, because we wanted the event to be not about us, because we wanted to lead it for the time being, but we wanted to set it up so that it would continue and it would have other leaders involved, not just us, because we are such big believers in teamwork. It just made sense to do it as a nonprofit. And that way, nobody was questioning our motive. Nobody was questioning why you know, where the money was flowing or anything else. And it, it just made a, a way to be very transparent, which I'm a big believer in and help as many people help as many people as possible. So my little mantra with the prosperity economics movement is to help as many people in as many ways as possible. And I am happy to serve my clients one-on-one and I hope I will do that forever because it gives me credibility with advisors that I can actually do the work. And yet at the same time, if I like here talking to you, I'm, I'm helping you now you can go help 500 clients and you could have done that without me, but I'm hoping that I can help you help those people even wow. more. Well, thank you, number one, but that mindset and, and I think it goes back to the 10X idea and, and thinking that you've probably picked up from strategic coach. And it's very, very evident in the way that you're building your, your, you know, nonprofit, but then just the way that your events go, I, I went the last two years. And if you're an advisor listening to this, I'm going to attach um, at the at the bottom of this podcast where you can get involved with the prosperity economics movement, because if you're an advisor and you don't want to just be giving typical advice, you need to be involved in this movement. And quite frankly, Kim, they need to come to the event. It doesn't even matter who's speaking. It's to interact with the other advisors who believe what they believe. Yes, I believe that so strongly. And Todd really does too. In fact, he shares that he does the event selfishly because he wants to be in the room with other like-minded people. Okay, let's get into the the seven principles of prosperity. And um, I'll, I'll just kind of, I'll name them off and you can kind of give your, your kind of overview, two cents. And, and then maybe like, is this kind of the first thing that you do when you sit down with clients? Yes. Now, a lot of times clients already have them because they've pulled them off our website. Okay. And so a lot of times I turn the tables and have the client describe them to me. That's, and that's, that's something that another thing that I've learned from you is ask questions and, and shut up and wait for <laughs> response. That's something I'm, I'm continuing to work on. But okay. So the first, the first uh, principle is think. Absolutely. And so this means a couple things. First, it's turn your brain on. I mean, in today's world, gosh, we just have become a receiver of information and we don't turn our brain on and apply our own mental processes to whatever it is that we are listening to or reading or watching. And then the second and equally important aspect of thinking is to remind ourselves to think from a prosperous mindset, not a scarcity mindset. And this is a daily, if not hourly, if not minute by minute exercise. And it's something that I still have to work on. And I believe all human beings probably will until the day we die. It's so easy to slide into scarcity mentality, fearful mentality. When we do that, we do not make good decisions. And so, 
we need to learn to catch ourselves when that's happening. So the goal is not to just always be constantly 100% thinking from an abundance mindset. That's not normal. I mean, I'm sure there's some people out there that do. The goal is to catch yourself when you're not. I see. Hmm. Yeah. If you can get it switched around, then you, when you look at things through the lens of an abundance mindset, when you are thinking from a prosperous mindset, you make better decisions, you have better relationships, you're on top of things in a more productive way, and you'll get so much better results. Do you have an example of thinking from an abundance mindset and like what the difference is between thinking from a scarcity mindset? Because I would, I would argue it is a lot of typical financial advice is actually programming us to think scarcity. Absolutely. I have a great example. Just came up a couple months ago. We had a particular real estate deal that finished. And so the guy was on the phone with me saying, Hey, I've got your money. Do you want it back? And we had a really big tax bill that we owed at the time. And it was really tempting to say, yes, send that back. I need to send that to the government. But I said, no, I'm going to, and I literally said to him, I'm putting on my abundance hat. I want you to reinvest that money because that's what that money is for. It is to stay invested and I will find the tax money somewhere else. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Second, second principle is C. So this one I always spell out. So S E E because it's too easy to go into like the ocean and that's not what we're talking about. (laughs) And what I mean by this second principle is to always look at things from the big picture, to see things from the macroeconomic, which just means the big picture, everything included perspective. And I'll, I'll get right into an example because it makes it easiest. There are way too many times, and it's normal when we're looking at our finances that we're like with the oak tree, you know, you talk about seeing the forest for the trees. You got the oak tree like at your nose and that's all you're seeing. You're seeing your mortgage decision or you're seeing your 401k decision or you're seeing your life insurance decision and that's all you're seeing. When we do that, it's totally fine to get at that level, you know, drill down, do your analysis, et cetera, but you must then back up and see that entire forest to see all of your finances because you will not make good decisions if all you stay dialed in on is the single financial decision that you're trying to make at the time. And I remember so often clients saying, well, I make my insurance decisions different from my investment decisions. No, you don't. It's all one personal economy. It's all one wallet, if you will. And you absolutely make all those decisions in light of that bigger personal economy or that bigger macroeconomic picture of your family's finances. And so the second principle of C S-E-E reminds us to back up and always make our decisions within the realm of the entire personal financial picture, not just whatever item we're analyzing at the time. And, and as entrepreneurs, like this, this principle is, is universal across like everything. I think it's, it's sometimes easy to like make, try to make a decision in, in like a vacuum and, and how much clarity comes back when you step back. And um, it's the same with our money and probably everything to our, with our life. I would agree. Yes. All right. The third principle is measure, which this one, this one, I probably Todd has a lot of lot to do with as as far as um, with this principle. Well, and it's a fun one because your reaction, I think most people's is is to say, well, of course, you know, it's personal finance. You're going to measure it. You're going to measure interest rates. You're going to measure timeframes. You're going to measure rate of returns, you know, whatever, whatever it is that you're measuring. 
but that's actually not what I mean by measure because that's obvious that we're going to do all that. Mm -hmm. What I mean by this single word of measure is a reminder that we must always also be measuring opportunity cost. And that is not a concept that most people know how to apply to their personal finances. So opportunity cost is something that we learned about in high school, college, accounting, econ, maybe math, but typically it's an accounting and, and it is an economic concept. And business owners apply it to their business all day long, but somehow in our society, we have forgotten to apply it to our own personal finances. And essentially, the definition of opportunity cost is what could you have done with the money elsewise? In other words, let's say you are taking a look at a car insurance decision. And this is super simple, but it applies to absolutely everybody. So it's a good analogy to use. And you have the ability to make a higher deductible decision. In other words, instead of a $100 deductible, maybe you have a $1,000 deductible, which would then cause a lower premium. So higher deductibles, lower premium. It's not a lot of money. Maybe it's uh, $300 in the course of a year. And so you're, you're going forward with this decision thinking it's not that big of a deal one way or the other. And you have to add in opportunity cost. And what that means is it's not just the 300 bucks every single year that is this difference. It's $300 times 80, 90 years that you're going to be driving a car. Okay, Peter Diamandis aside for a minute. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That you are also able to invest or save that money. And it's particularly mm-hmm. challenging right now. You know, we're recording this in late 2018 because interest rates are so low that opportunity cost appears to be irrelevant. But it's not. I mean, if you have a place where you could earn 4% on your money, Caleb, you know a place mm-hmm. where you can earn 4% on your money, right? Yeah. Uh, to, to a lot I of do. listeners, yeah. that may be interesting. So if you don't know where, please reach out to Caleb and learn where. But if, if you can have a place where you can confidently earn 4% on your money, then your opportunity cost is 4%. So the measuring goes like this. I take my 300 bucks and I can blow it on a vacation or a nice dress or whatever, or I could save it or invest it. I won't get into the difference of those two words right now. At 4% for the rest of my life. So now you take mm-hmm. that fun little calculation, 300 bucks, 4% for 80 years and put that into a calculator and you can get some really big numbers. That's the kind of impact that opportunity cost decision-making has. And so this principle of measure is just a reminder that every decision works within opportunity cost. Every decision works within time value of money, yeah. right? Yeah. That's a discussion you and I've had often. Mm -hmm. And you must always apply time value of money slash opportunity cost to your decisions if it's longer than one day of time. Lots, lots there. I, I, in, in my book, I, and I've gotten this from you and some other people that I've learned from is like, we disrespect the value of our dollar for not thinking what a dollar could be worth over a long period of time. And you so beautifully 
just explain opportunity costs. Do you think, I mean, if someone gets opportunity cost, they, they really have a deep understanding of money. That's well said. Gets it and knows how to apply it. Yeah. Apply it. Yep. <laughs> Okay, number four, flow. So this is our reminder that cash must flow. And there's a very distinct difference between this principle and the sixth one, move. Flow is designed to remind us that cash must be flowing in and out. So obviously, we would all love to have investments that cash flow money in. And yet, if you talk to typical financial advisors, that is their hardest spot to find money to get that job done. It's very, very difficult, again, especially in the low interest rate environment that we're dealing with. But I find even otherwise, it's very difficult to get money to flow in. And yet, inside the movement and in our work, we know all kinds of investments that cash flow money in on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Additionally, it's equally important to cash flow money out. In other words, to be consciously, proactively, saving money, cash flowing money out on a regular basis, you know, every month, every quarter, every year, we need to be flowing money out on purpose to save. And I use save as a very active verb in this case. Yes, we need savings as a noun, but we want to be consciously, productively in the act of saving, which is cash flow out. So that's what this single word is designed to remind us that to be looking for cash flow investments in and to be proactively saving with cash flow going out. Is that what's when Robert Kiyosaki says that invest in assets that produce, you know, cash flow, is that kind of the same mentality of like get you're you're saying flow back and forth, but this idea of a lot of typical financial advice is, hey, go put your money and lock it up. And right. it's there's really no movement at all. And then we're gonna take that money out someday. And what you're saying is, wait a second, like wouldn't it be great if we could make investments that cash could be flowing our way like immediately? Exactly. Got it. That's powerful. Um, the the fifth the fifth principle is control, and I I pretty that's pretty much the thesis of what I wrote about is the power of control. So I'm curious on how you explain um, control. Well, it's something that, again, the typical financial world has just completely taken away from us. And I would add the government in there as well. So if you look at the the typical products that are out there, 401ks, remove control, 15-year mortgages, remove control, 403bs, IRAs, remove control, 529 plans, remove control. And a lot of products remove control too. The stock market removes control from our hands. And so I'm encouraging people to take that control back and to be working with investments that they control. And a lot of times, it's not the investment itself, but literally the paperwork. So as an example, if you're wanting to invest in, say, mutual funds, they're not my favorite, but let's say that those are where you are right now. Well, the way that you, and I'm not talking in an IRA, just regular after-tax mutual funds, a way that you can get control back of those, and I'm going to say you can't get it all back, which is part of the problem, but one of the strategies to differentiate the difference between a product that you buy and a strategy is something that you do, one of the strategies that is a really big part of getting control back is to not reinvest your dividends and capital gains. That's as simple as a check on the box of don't reinvest or hmm. pay in cash is often how it's worded. 
And that puts control back on the side of the client, at least a little bit of control. And so I'm always just encouraging clients to look for areas that they can control and stay away from areas that they cannot control. Again, the examples that I gave, when you put extra money into a mortgage, you lost control of that money. When you put money in a 401k plan, you lost control of that money. Yes, I know you can pick your funds inside, but you do not have control of that. The government Mm -hmm. has control of that asset. So it's so important that we have control of our money and not give it up to other people and entities. Okay. The sixth one is move. You referenced this when you talked about flow and to the average person, these look like the same thing. Yes. So they're different in that move or movement of money implies the verb through. So to pick up on the 401ks and the prepaying of mortgages, we tend to put our money to things. And I'm encouraging people to put their money through things. You cannot put your money through 401ks and prepaid mortgages. You can put your money through life insurance and real estate. And so what that means is that the dollars can go in and come back out the other side. And you're right, it is very tip, very similar to f- flow, but flow is differentiated because that's money out and money in, which is like at the beginning and the end, if you will. Move is through, which is in the middle. And that ability to move money through things is super, super important. And money moving through does not always happen on the in and the out. So you might have a case where you've got both flow and movement in the same asset, money in, money through, money out, but you might also have a case where you don't. And so I just felt it was important to differentiate those two. Plus, when you combine the sixth principle and the seventh one, which I'll just roll on into if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Because they really go together. The ability for money to multiply, which means that the dollar is moving through an asset in order to get the advantage of that asset and, which is the title of your book, right? The and (laughs) asset. Yeah, yeah. The dollar needs to move through the asset and then move on into another asset to get the advantage of that asset also, where you can truly get your classic, you know, $1 is doing two things or, you know, the kill two birds with one stone idea. So because money is moving, it can multiply. Money multiplies when it moves. And when it doesn't move, it doesn't multiply. And uh, Lisa Satsovich has a great line. She says, I don't want my money stuck in a pond. I want it flowing like a river. And I think that's a great analogy, isn't it? Because I love that. If you think about water in a pond, it's stagnant, it's glimy, it's you know, gross, it's not healthy water often. And yet Mm -hmm. money in a river, sorry, I meant water in a pond. Um, water in a river is moving healthy, vibrant oxygenated water and money is the same thing. When money is stuck, it has all of the bad things of a pond and when money is moving, it has all the good things of a river. Wow. <laughs> I, uh, I'm, I'm so excited for this to get published or this, this podcast because if, if someone takes half of what you've shared through this, they, they're on their way for, to be financially free and think with a financial 
free mind mentality. And so thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, your willingness to so gen generously share with with my audience so generously pour into me and and help mentor me and uh i know this is kind of, we we've been on here for uh quite a bit of time but i want to finish with one question it's one of my favorite questions to ask and it's this idea based around this whole idea of legacy okay so you're you have one more conversation with me or someone that you care very very much about and that's all What's what's going to be the one thing that you try to get across? This this might not have anything to do with money, but what's like what's one of the one things that you've learned in your life that you feel is so valuable to pass on? <laughs> um, what immediately pops into my head is what I have shared at our events as what I call my number one sales tool, but I think it's also my number one relationship building tool, and it's also my number one learning tool and it's silence. It's the ability to be quiet and listen to whoever it is that you're talking with or to listen to nature or your higher power, if that's a better word for you or whatever you want to call where wisdom comes from. And so if I could leave only one tip or thought that is what it would be, is just to remember the whole two ears and one mouth setup that we have and use it. Kim, thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely. It was a joy, Caleb. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. Make sure you press subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or your favorite podcast player.